Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 278, recorded December 2nd, 2017. Today we are doing Star Trek The Enterprise Experiment, issues number 4 and 5, finishing off that miniseries. Yes, and a cool little miniseries it is. It's just trying to explain so many things that came out of Taw's loose threads that were never fully explained. It's really quite amazing. Yes, and it's written by you know one of the writers of the Taz, so I guess it's her way of bookending the series the way she she wanted it to be, uh, or the way she envisioned it to be end to end to all wrap up together. Right, and the idea that it is wrapping up a lot of loose fr- loose ends from that uh, series must do your heart great joy. Who, my heart or everybody's heart? Your heart. Well, well my heart too, but. But but you like everything explained and loose ends and and continuity, right? That's true. That's stuff. true. So this this should be right up my alley, <sighs> right? Of course, you're not as big a Taws guy as you are Next Gen and uh, DS9, but still, right? Yeah, out of all the series, it's it's my least watched, and uh, it's the ones I'm least familiar with out of out of all of these series, except right. for Discovery too, because I'm a little behind on that, right? Well, which is quite great at the uh, at the season break. The second half of the first season should be quite different from the first half. Quite different. All right. Well, let's not talk about that too much. No. Plus, it's old, old news by the time we get this out. Oh, are you kidding? It's going to be <laughs> like <laughs> 10 months old news at the rate we're going. Anyway, so let's do But, yeah, day. anyways, uh, yeah, so this uh, – you know, th- this is good. DC Fontaine also wrote a lot of the animated series, so mm-hmm. I think I wonder if, in her mind, all of that actually happened, and then this kind of bookends it. But well, there should be another. There. there should be another year, right? So this is this shouldn't be the end of the five year mission because it is say year four, right? Yeah, and at the end of the book, it even says uh, Kirk says nearly four years now, Bones. That's how long we've been out here. So nearly four years. So they're towards the. Well, yeah, they're squarely in the fourth year. Right, right. Okay. So I wonder if the TV series is supposed to be, or the cartoon is the fifth year, or it doesn't happen, or what? Or it's all part of this. I mean, uh, I mean, there's nothing that says that this story can't be right in the middle of the first season of the animated series. Right, right. RX is there. Uh, Chekhov we, is there. Oh, wait. He's done in the cartoon. Uh, yeah, I don't think check. I don't remember seeing Chekhov in these. Uh, he was on the cover of one of the other issues, right? Was he? So, Did he yeah. have a speaking part? Well, oh, well, whatever. I don't think so. Doesn't matter. Yeah. All right. Well, that being said, uh, I could go ahead and start doing the, the synopsis for four, and we can talk about it. Let's do it. All right. So the first issue we're going to cover today is Star Trek Year Four, The Enterprise Experiment. Issue number four came out July of 2008 by IDW Publishing. Uh, the writers were DC Fontania and Derek Chester. Pencils by Gordon Purcell. Inks by Drew Garassi, Jose Marzen Jr., and Tom Wynn. Colors by John Hunt. Letters by Neil Yutaki. And edits by Scott Dunbar. There is a single cover, and it shows uh, Sulu dressed up as a Klingon standing in front of the Galileo 7 with Kirk laying on the ground holding a a busted-up lip. So the story starts with the Enterprise crew exploring the underground city that was exposed last issue by the recent Klingon attack. Uh, There they find an obelisk like the Preserver one that they encountered in the classic Taz episode, The Paradise Syndrome. 
We are then treated to a flashback of McCoy visiting his estranged daughter's graduation from Starfleet Medical. Uh, she says she finally forgives him for choosing Starfleet over the family, which forced her and her mother to live all these years without him. Elsewhere, an unnamed Starfleet officer suggests a truce with a captured Romulan. Elsewhere again, Klingon Commander Kor has stolen an archway from the underground city, and he now has it on his ship. They are trying to get it to work, and they're even frying a few Klingon subordinates in order to do so. Meanwhile in the city, Spock and Kirk find where the archway would have been located, and they comment on how crudely it was removed. Spock speculates that he does not think the Klingons will be able to control it. On the Enterprise, Oryx is using a mind meld to read the captured Klingon's mind. He now knows what Kor's plan is. Later, Kirk orders Sulu to pose as the captured Klingon and get them aboard the Klingon ship. Kirk and Spock will act like Sulu's prisoners, and the Enterprise will depart. Soon, Kor arrives, and he does not question why the warrior looks different and why the Enterprise would leave two of its finest officers for no reason. Kor ties up Kirk and Spock, and Sulu is allowed to return to the Klingon ship. Later, Sulu makes his way to the Arch, and he beams over to the Enterprise with it. Oryx leads a rescue mission on the planet, and he frees Kirk and Spock. The rescued crew makes their way to the shuttle and returns to the Enterprise. Kor vows revenge. To be concluded. Wow. Nice short synopsis. Hey, I, was, I was trying to, uh, you know. Stick to the points. The main Stick points. to the points, right. There I did go. bring up the, the flashback thing, even though it didn't really add anything to the story. But uh, but I kept thinking it has there has to be a reason why it's here, so I'm gonna you know at least mention it. Right, right. So it'll all pay off in the next issue, right? So in <laughs> issue five, we'll find out why Kirk is lamenting about his family, and now McCoy is is thinking about his. Oh yeah, so it all ties it's all in. Gonna pay off in issue five. Oh, it all ties into the main storyline. Not. Oh, oh not. No, I, I think DC just wanted to have a little um, – she just wanted to tell more backstory about the three bit main characters, the terrific trio. She just wanted to tell a little bit more about their backstory, fill them out more. She's, she, she apparently wanted to do this for years, I guess, and so right. she did it, and they have absolutely nothing to do with the uh, main story. Yeah, it would have been better if they would have done a flashback on – Oryx or somebody like that that we we don't know anything about you know he just shows up and we don't know anything about him I would have liked you know you know talking about his backstory oh, how he suddenly has true. mind mind melding powers My- you know, <laughs> things like that yeah little things like that maybe a little bit about his race the Edosians which I didn't even know that was his race until the fourth uh, the, the fourth and final issue the fifth and final issue? Or the fifth and final issue, yeah. Right, Adosians. It sounds like they sleep a lot. <laughs> they doze. They doze a lot. But when they're awake, they can do all kinds of things with three arms, three legs, and telekinetic abilities and mind-melding abilities and things. Very handy. So you think with three legs, they would run faster than a two-legged person? I'm going to say no. Yeah, I would. I'm going to say it's even worse. Yeah, I keep trying to think how how that would even work. I don't I don't think they can run. <laughs> I, I don't know. How they, I mean, so think of the mechanics of a dog or a cheetah, whatever. You know, two sets of legs that the pairs are working with each other, right? Right. Right. I think the third one will get in the way. Yeah, it is. It, it is not very practical. No, it doesn't seem to be. But maybe they were not uh, prey on their planet that they evolved on. I don't know. But three arms sure is handy for technologically uh, advanced uh, peoples that need a lot of dexterity. Right, right. I get the arms thing. It's the legs thing that, yeah. that just doesn't... It, yeah. Seems like it would just be in the way. I, I agree. For running. Yeah. 
But it would be cool if if we saw a backstory and and learned more about his people. Maybe maybe you know like the women, they only have two legs. Uh, men have three or what four are you trying to say? I'm just saying I don't know. I don't know about something. You take this wrong. What you're saying? Okay. I'm just saying it would have been nice if we were going to get a backstory. I would have wanted his backstory. Okay, right, exactly, because we don't know much about him. Whereas Kirk and McCoy and Spock, all three backstory little vignettes they've got here, all it, it's all based on things we know already. We already know that there's family problems with McCoy because of him not being there for his family. We already know that. We know Kirk has problems with David and David and Carol Marcus and that kind of stuff. We already know Spock has problems with his relationship with his father. You know, it's just expanding on things we already know, what they right. do in the, these books. Right, right. I would have, uh, you know, you know, we've gotten different origins for Ahura and stuff in, in different comic book continuity. So mm-hmm. it would have been nice to, you know, what is DC Fontania's, what is her idea of what the definitive origin of, you know, or backstory of Sulu, Spock, or not Spock, Scotty, uh, Ahura. You know, if you were going to keep it with the main cast members, do somebody other than the three that we already know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Or tell us something we really don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, like Spock has a brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, he's got uh, a stepsister or, you know, whatever uh, the hell she sister, he is. Yeah. Adopted sister. Oh, and that, uh, and that, uh, what, what was her name? Uh, oh, man, I forgot her name. Oh, Burnham? Christy Alley's character. Oh, Christy Alley. Okay, yeah. Yeah, remember sometimes she was also raised by Sarek, too. Uh, there you go. Exactly. The Sarek's... Romulan wild child that was raised by Sarek. Exactly. Yes. Isn't that funny? Yeah, they, they retread some of the same ideas. All right, what is her name? I can't... Um, uh, uh, Savik. Savik, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Hey, put me on the spot, man. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So, anyways, so back to this book. I yep. want to I want to say that Core does have some great lines in the book. I like this one. I hear the call of the hunt, and I will have your blood, Kirk. Love that. <laughs> I, I, he's my favorite Klingon. Really, your favorite yeah. Core, even over um, Koloff. Oh, <laughs> he's the most entertaining one because I cannot get Reverend the Reverend Jim character out of my mind. Let's see who who would be my favorite Klingon. <sighs> I can't think of one. Uh, okay. Worf, really? Uh, well, okay, okay. So Worf, okay, fine. <laughs> but but an evil Klingon. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of times they do give them pretty good lines. Yeah. Uh, and and that actor is really good as a bad guy. What? Who? Core? Uh, yeah, the Anthony whatever his name is. I don't remember his name exactly. He's the one that played Trelane too, right? Or no, that's Cole. You're thinking Cole. Off. Cole. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, Anthony something or other. Um, I think it's Anthony. Anyway, so he's played bad guys in a lot of series, Battlestar Galactica. In fact, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen him not play a bad guy. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I just there's just something very smart and dangerous about uh, the core character, I think, and the way he's played him. Anyway, that's my opinion. Yeah, I just uh, so what what is his plan to do with the uh, the arch? What's he going to do with it? Oh, um, they're trying to find out. Okay, well, what you find out as the, as the fourth and fifth books unfold is that he's trying to find out where yet another um, outpost is, where he's trying to get the secrets of it. Now, why they didn't. Why they weren't able to get more of the secrets that they found on the first planet from that outpost? Why they like like the like the Klingons decided, oh, we can't get anything new out of this. Let's go to this other outpost. Um, I don't know, but that's basically where uh, Kor and his his ships went to. They went to this other outpost. Okay, so when they and, stole the archway, they went to that other outpost and then came back. Well, yes, and the ar- and the if you remember the uh, that archway was the thing that shoved a whole bunch of knowledge 
right, into right. the people that stuck their heads into it. You know, so that happened to Kirk and I think Spock too. Um, well, it happens to Spock and yeah, in there, yeah. But okay, so all this knowledge is forced into their heads. Whoever like gets too close to it, and then um, it kind of messes you up. But then the Klingons were using the Mind Ripper to get the information uh, out. So they found out, hey, there's another outpost. And for some reason, that other outpost has the real secrets mm-hmm. to these advanced people and what they can do. And, you know, the secrets that hopefully we can get mainly military. And so that's why Kor was going off to the other place. Um, anyway. Okay. All right. Well, after reading this, I uh, that was not clear to me. No. No, it wasn't the clearest thing in the world, but it was made even more clear in the fifth issue. So, gotcha. So we have that to look forward to. So uh, one thing that is clear to me in this issue is yeah. that uh, the best way to punch somebody is with the palm of your hand. <laughs> exactly. A core punch. Or, uh, that, that's the way that um, uh, uh, Michael Dorn's oh, – Worf? Memory, Worf. That so that's the way Worf always fought, right? He always had right. like a, you hit him in you hit him at your palm. You don't hit him with your 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 fist because your fist is made up of a bunch of little fragile bones, and you'll mess up your fingers. Hit him with the palm of the hand. That's right. Right. So Core does it once to his own person, which yeah. then leaves a, a purple yes. smear of blood. The, the Pepto Bismol colored blood. I love that. Yeah, and then later uh, he does it to Kirk, which leaves a red smear on his right. hand. Right. But in between, then Sulu does it, and you're just like, okay, well, I never saw oh. Sulu fighting that way. Okay, but did he have a smear of blood on his hand? No, there was no blood. Okay, okay. They okay. could only do two smears per issue. <laughs> they would run out of ink otherwise. I mean, <laughs> it's very hard to find a Pepto Bismol color. Yeah, I was happy to see that. Um, because that's something that was really only in uh, undiscovered country. Exactly. So, so that they could get that PG-13 rating. Uh, <laughs> is that really? Yeah, yeah. Is no. that how they got a PG-13 to have blood, Klingon Pepto-Bismol colored blood floating around? Yeah, I guess I guess the they were worried that the ratings wouldn't want a whole bunch of floating human or human looking blood. So they colored it purple so they, oh, they could get away oh. with it. Oh, okay. Because otherwise, that would have given them an R rating. I guess I don't know. It still seems like still seems pretty tame to me. Yeah, but, very tame. And I don't know if it was really. I think that was in the the commentary of the of the movie. Okay, that's that's what they said. But who knows? That might not be true. Yeah, there you go. They don't always tell you the truth on those commentaries. They can lie. Oh my gosh, they're people. They can lie. Hmm. Okay, well, okay. Anyways. So uh, I was definitely not expecting the tie-in with the Paradise Syndrome Taws episode. No. I wasn't expecting it to be what you were saying, the uh, Organians. Exactly. So so they they go off and start talking about this. And, of course, in the Paradise Syndrome is where we saw that arch thingy the first time. Um, And there... Uh, in that episode, they were referring to, you know, the the people that left the infrastructure there for the the the, the uh, Native Americans, and they were Native Americans, by the way. They didn't just happen to look like Native Americans; they were actually taken from um, from Earth. And the higher version was referred to as the Wise Ones. Um, yet apparently they were all they were really the preservers. Um, and the preservers actually transplanted races that were uh, endangered under under attack from outside forces, um, and that's why they took the American Indians off of Earth and put some of them in uh, on that planet. So, in regards to that, who were they in danger from? Because uh, us. So it was Europeans. a recent thing. Yes. Because I thought that they were implying that they'd been there for thousands of years, not hundreds of years. Yeah, I, I don't remember that in the book or in the story. 
No, no, I'm talking about in the movie, the Taws. in the show, right? Yeah, the the Taws episode. I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember it yeah. either. Anyway, but so, if you think about it, it was really only what three, two or two or three hundred years, right? When the white man came and and took took the United States, yeah, uh, from from that point to you know the Taws time frame, right? But I always get the feeling that the preservers have been gone thousands and thousands of years. They left the galaxy, you know, yeah, for a long time, yeah. Uh, I think they kept meddling with things and saving people for quite a while. And now, well, anyway, we'll find out in issue five. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, so you think thousands of years ago, though the American Indians were taken, and they just happened to evolve to look exactly like, uh, you know, what we see as American Indians. <laughs> yeah, I don't you know. know. With the Tonto feather and everything. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but that's supposedly what the deal was. And and they were not alone. There were other peoples from other planets that were transplanted Ooh, to places. And I'm I'm assuming we're gonna find that out soon. Uh they refer to it. Mm-hmm. But not in specific terms. Right. Well we could talk about it here. Yeah, it's like you when you get it when you get towards the end of issue five, and I'm sorry my synopsis is a little long, but it's like DC is explaining everything, and it's like, oh my god, really? 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 We, I didn't know that. And quite frankly, I didn't always wonder, but she explains a lot of things, which is kind of cool. Anyway, of which referring to, uh, you know, tying together uh, the wise ones with the preservers, with the Organians, and even the Metrons, it's all very interesting. I just wonder cool. if it's canon. And I wonder if this is really what Roddenberry and other writers all like had in mind, or whether it's retconning, DC retconning. Yeah, could be. Or, or just filling, maybe not retconning, because ret, retconning implies changing things later um, about something that's happened already. She may not be changing anything in those original stories. She's just pr- putting forward ideas that tie some of those incidents across different Taws episodes together. Right. You know. Yeah, so. no. I mean, if she... If only she was here to tell us. Exactly. I mean, she's even explaining the barrier around the, oh, yeah, the Milky that cool. Way. Right. That's cool. It's like, well, why is that barrier there? And it's like, I can, I can pretty much guarantee you that when... Uh, uh, I forgot the writer of Where No Man Has Gone Before. I can bet you that he's just, oh, no, it's a barrier. I don't right. know. You know <laughs> who, who created the, the barrier isn't natural? Oh, no, no. It's just a natural barrier. It's naturally forming, and it just happens to elevate your ESP powers. That's all. Um, but DC actually gives an explanation, so pretty cool. All right, well, we're not quite there yet, Ken. I know. I know. You're just teasing it up. I'm teasing it up big time. So, well, I don't really have any more to say aside from um, I did think it was a little convenient that Core never questioned this random Klingon guy yeah. that happened to capture Kirk and Spock. Well, I, I can just I can just only hope that it was a crewman. He just assumed it was a crewman. He hadn't really gotten to know. I mean, how many people are on a? I mean, aren't there multiple ships too? Yeah. Um... No, there's just the one, right? There's just the one? Okay. Well, okay. So I thought Kor had more than one ship with him at the beginning. Definitely had to have a whole bunch of them at the end in, in issue five. But okay, well, here so, he only has one. Okay. So maybe, uh, I don't know. The only thing that could explain it is he doesn't necessarily know by sight all of his crewmen. Sure. Which who knows how many people are actually on one of those ships. I don't know. But you would think that they would be speaking Klingon and not English. <laughs> I, I still find it hard to you believe know, in that Taz, the universal translator would always be 100% where you can't even tell it's a little artificial. Uh, exactly. I mean, accents and stuff. Right. You know, idioms, you know, whatever. Thing, spoken language things that are very hard to duplicate. Star Trek doesn't really, especially old Star Trek, Taz Star Trek, really doesn't worry about that kind of stuff. Everybody speaks English. Let's 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 it's, move on. It's not English, Ken. It's uh 
What did Gold Esperanto? Key it? Esperanto. Which is a real language. Yeah, that's what you were saying. Yeah, it's a real language. I just, I just don't know how. <laughs> Why does somebody feel necessary to come up with a language that actually didn't naturally occur? I mean, I don't know, but whatever. Okay. Uh, so if if we actually if the human race actually standardized on English, say, or Spanish, or French, or Russian, then there'd always be pissed off people. So maybe you gotta standardize on a on a language nobody knows. You know, maybe that's it. I don't know. But that's why we should pick Klingon. I mean, there's already <laughs> so many people that already know it. Yeah, the only problem with Klingon is there's a little bit too much spit involved. Everybody would have raspy throats forever. Raspy throats, a lot of spit being hurled. I don't know if it's the most hygienic way to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ken, watch your language. This is a family show. <laughs> I think I said beam me up, but okay. <laughs> I, I could have I misspoke. Anyways. All right, what else do you have on this issue? I got nothing else on this one. All right. Well, then let's go on to five and see how this all wraps up. Yeah, let's do the big boy. Okay. So, sorry about the length of this uh, synopsis, but... Okay. So, this is issue five. It has a published date of August 2008. Uh, And I think everybody's pretty much the same, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing, uh, a list of people. Okay, so there's one cover, and it features uh, Spock as his hands are in the archway... Uh, that's forcing uh, knowledge in his brain. And he's in pain, of course. And uh, Kirk is chilling uh, in the background. So that's, that's that cover. Cool. Spock, having returned his father, Ambassador Sarek, to Vulcan, is meditating in uh, the Ponfar battle pit, um, where not so long ago he killed Captain Kirk. Sarek joins him and engages in a conversation that reveals much about their unique father-son relationship. Sarek speaks of how he, like Spock, experienced strong, sometimes damaging emotions, and how that all came to an end when he undertook the Kolinar. Sarek is encouraging Spock to undergo the Kolinar without actually coming out and saying it. Uh, And of course this is eventually what Spock will begin, but not complete, in the future as part of the uh, plot of Star Trek The Motion Picture. They bid each other goodbye. The scene shifts with neck-snapping force when Spock returns to the present where he is mind-melding with the knowledge transfer machine, the Archway, which is now or is presently aboard the Enterprise. It has much to offer and almost fries Spock's mind. Always the subtle surgeon Scotty shoots Spock with a phaser set to stun to break Spock's mind meld with the machine. Seeing the machine is about to go all explodey, Kirk orders Rx to beam it off the ship just in time to avoid total destruction. However, the Enterprise takes some damage, including warp drive, which goes offline. Spock recovers with difficulty, but still pretty quickly. He reports his reprogramming of the device was moderately successful. However, his tampering did trigger a self-destruct device. Spock goes on to say the structure they explored was a preserver outpost. Their mission was to preserve cultures on the verge of extinction due to outside forces like the American Indian. In an ironic turn, an outside force eventually threatened the preservers. That outside threat led them to create the Galactic Barrier. Spock's statement takes both Kirk and McCoy aback. The barrier is maintained by outposts, just like the one on Lauren 5, and it's that technology the Klingons are after. After the preservers left the galaxy, they left their outposts running and guided by automated systems to protect over their charges as well as they could. The barrier was weakened over time, but they likely just intended to keep the wolves at bay while the child races of the galaxy developed and came eventually to defend themselves. Kirk mentions the Kelvins that they ran into who came from outside the Milky Way. They were crippled by the barrier, 
but were still formidable and unpredictable. While embraced by the machine, Spock did receive the coordinates of another outpost that unfortunately is on the edge of Gorn space. If he could obtain that information, maybe the Klingons could too. The race is on, but only at warp 5, due to the explosion which damaged the engines. Scotty is still repairing them, but they can only uh, make warp 5. Meanwhile, on Kor's ship, they have detected the magnitude 7 explosion of the device's self-destruction. Kor gives the orders to head to that location top speed. Later, the Enterprise arrives at the location of the second preserver outpost, but initially only finds stellar gas and small objects, no planets. Spock initiates a search on the assumption that the ancient positional information he obtained must be adjusted for the galactic expansion. Meanwhile, on Kor's ship, they are observing the Enterprise under cloak from a safe distance. They have been following the Enterprise for quite some time to make up for their lack of success obtaining the outpost coordinates for themselves. Kor orders one of their escort vessels to carry word to the fleet to send reinforcements. Back in the Enterprise bridge, they have arrived at Spock's newly calculated coordinates, but only find asteroids caught in the gravity of a gas giant. Kirk warns if Spock's calculations are incorrect, and they are forced into a prolonged search, the odds of the Gorn detecting them and attacking will go up sharply. Suddenly, Rx doubles over in pain. Kirk and Spock grab Rx to keep him from hitting the ground and all three are transported to another place whose surroundings are all in white. Spock sees what might be some kind of control panel when Aelborn walks up, telling them to stop. This place is not for you. A long conversation-slash-debate ensues, the upthrust of which Aelborn and his people are sick of imposing peace upon the younger races. They have decided the younger races must earn their own peace, and have bowed out of, the, of interfering. They planned to reach out to the younger races when they are more developed, say in another thousand years, but now that Kirk has discovered their location, it prompts a response. They simply are not ready for the knowledge contained in this and other outposts. Aelborn refers to themselves as children of the preservers, for the first time, and says, like the Federation and Klingons, his people fought the Metrons bitterly. However, in time, they found a way to peace, just as the Federation, Klingons, and the rest must. Aelborn tells Arex his people, the Edosians, have a special role to play in the future that will benefit all the races of the galaxy, if all the races of the galaxy do not destroy themselves first. Finally, Aelborn says, Like their prime directive, all of the advanced children of the Preservers are bound to not interfere in the affairs of the younger races. They made a mistake interfering with the Klingon and Federation, but that mistake will not continue. Kirk, Spock, and Arex are returned to the bridge. Scotty is at the con, reporting multiple Klingon ships are approaching them at high speed. Kirk asks Scotty to get back to engineering and prepare to depart with as much speed as he can get out of the damaged engines. Aelborn's ghostly image appears on the bridge and says he is appearing to all the leaders of the, all their governments. He tells them they have squandered the time that his people have given them with the imposed peace. They have made no moves towards a lasting peace. They will have to find their way on their own now. Their remaining outposts are well hidden, and any further attempt to locate them and learn their secrets will result in harsh consequences. Peace out. Elbord's image is replaced by a blinding white light, which, after a moment, too, disappears. Kirk orders the Enterprise to move out of the asteroid field and punch it up to warp 7. They are outnumbered and have to get out of their ASAP. Kor opens a channel and blusters about Kirk taking his prize again, blah, 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 and tells Kirk to surrender his ship and his crew or be totally destroyed. The Enterprise can't get away in time and is quickly surrounded and taking Klingon fire. 
just in time, a flotilla of Starfleet ships arrive and attack the Klingon ships. The commanding admiral tells Kirk to get to Starbase 11 ASAP for debriefing. He and the task force will make sure the Klingons get their fill of fighting. Days later, at an undisclosed location, Kor, Koloth, the, remain, the Romulan female commander and her number one all meet and strike a bargain to trade 20 Klingon D7 cruisers immediately for Romulan cloaking technology. Koloth realizes loss of that many ships will seriously compromise the Klingon ability to control the Empire, but the cloaking tech and the Romulan power joined to theirs against the Federation is too tempting to turn down. Later still, the Romulan female commander meets with the mystery Starfleet Admiral, who discloses the Romulan and Klingon alliance is all the Admiral's doing. A dangerous three-way liaison is in place that will make the future very interesting indeed. The end. Well, there's one more page, right? Yeah, there is, but it's irrelevant. (laughs) Okay, so it's just the normal banter between the three main uh, Starfleet folks. So, yeah, so they just return to one page of the terrific trio talking to each other. As all good Star Trek stories should end. Exactly. But they really don't say anything of consequence, so I didn't they, bother including They it. rarely do, can they? Rarely do. <laughs> exactly. The synopsis so, was long enough. So you think this was the creation of Nimbus 3? With with uh, with the Klingon, Romulan, and Federations getting along? Uh, I really had not thought about that. That it had any relationship. Um, because really, it... It's a three-way thing where people are backstabbing each other like crazy, especially the Romulans. So I don't know that it actually leads to, like, an overture, the Nimbus 3 overture, where they're supposed to be get together talking. But right. maybe. Um... Well, oh, oh, I'm not sorry. So you're saying maybe Aelborn's discussion, or Aelborn's big thing talking to everybody everywhere. Maybe that's what led to that. As opposed to the... Uh, duplicitous three-way deal that was going on between the three main races that was completely back-channel. Is that what right. you're saying? I, I, was, I was more just being sarcastic that, uh, oh, okay. that here it is, all, all three races are together doing something. Um, whereas I don't think most people think Nimbus 3 actually happened. So I think I think most Trek has uh, forgotten Star Trek Five. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I, we've tried to. Uh, <laughs> it's really not that bad. Uh, it, it's pretty bad. Um, I kind of like the horse part stuff in the beginning, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> the horse part? Yeah. I mean the – oh. <laughs> you know where they're riding where, around and stuff? Where, and where and they got the going? combat phasers and stuff? Uh. <laughs> I mean, don't, right. don't they ride in on horses? Uh, at some point, but it starts with the uh, Yosemite. But there is a horse. Oh at the no, beginning. no, of course, no, not like that, a not unicorn, right? Isn't it a does Cyclops yacht have a unicorn or something? <laughs> when he takes off his his hood and he has the pointed ears and he's all laughing, and then that one Nimbus guy's like all confused. That's how it begins, right? Pretty sure. Well, okay. I'm talking about the part where Kirk and company are riding to the rescue on horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said at the beginning. That's like way at the end. Well, it's not at the end. Middle. At the end is when they're trying to talk to God. They're talking, not trying. They are. Well, that's not God. What? Because after all, what would God need with a starship? Huh. Well, I got to rewatch it now. <laughs> anyway whatever so um you know i think the way they left this is just fascinating it is interesting because i think they're they're teeing this up to have a wow a three-way backstabbing who knows how this is going to end kind of thing of course we know how it ended because it played out it's just that behind all of this was a three-way liaison and the goody goody federation was actually part of the manipulation 
Right. That's that's fascinating. So the real thrust of this, you know, this this Section Thirty One Admiral or whatever he is, is to weaken the Klingons by taking away what a third or a quarter of their ships. Nearly a quarter, yeah. Okay, so I can see that, but they're also getting cloaking technology, which is like, I can't see that being a good thing for the Federation. And by the way, the big deal about this this uh, Federation cloak that can actually go take a ship out of phase so they can't even be hit by weaponry, Right. it doesn't, it, it works, but they can't control it. So that thing is like, like BS anyway, because we never really see it in use in the future. Anyway, right. yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, concept but, that never plays out. Right. But it sure does look appetizing when you hear about it. Sure, sure. So, yeah, it's enough impetus for the Klingons and Romulans to, um, to get together. And you know, maybe that's the whole point, isn't it? Okay, so so this Section 31 Admiral sends Kirk and company out with a technology that he knows is, is impractical. But he does that to bait the Klingons out into taking action because they think – or actually the Romulans – to bait the Romulans out to taking action because the Federation has this awesome new technology, which they think actually works. But really, the Admiral knows doesn't really work. Right. Fascinating. Okay. I wish that it would have actually called him a Section 31 Admiral or given him a name. Well, I- I'm surprised he was an Admiral. I mean, he he did have, like, the little flowery thing, right? Uh, right. Patch. Yeah. Admirals tend to have that, right? Uh, is that an Admiral patch? I thought that was more of a... Or a Commodore? Or what? Yeah, I don't know. It's not a rank, right? The ranks oh. would be on their sleeves, right? Well, yeah, okay, but... Okay. But I seem to remember seeing mainly admirals having that kind of uh, patch. Hmm. Maybe, I guess maybe if well, you're whatever. in command, because it's supposed to be your mission patch, right? So I guess if you're if you're part of the admiralty, you would all have the same command. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, don't okay, know. so he's an admiral. But the thing is, most of the Section 31 people tend to not be, I mean, they're like spies. They're not admirals, but well, they well, do well, use Starfleet people. Where they need to, so okay. I mean, Marcus, Admiral Marcus, wasn't was he Section Thirty One? He never said he was, did he? Uh, oh, you know what? Maybe he never did. I just assumed he was. Well, and maybe you you assume correctly. It's just they never came out and said it. That's a good point. I always assumed that he was, and I thought that, huh? I was convinced, but yeah, I don't think I don't think he ever does say it. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think he does either, but it's implied, and Section 31 doesn't normally advertise themselves, so it kind of makes sense. Right. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, so the guy, the, uh, what was his name? Atro- not Atro- Elborn? Atrocitus. Elborn. He's, he's... Atrocitus. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, a Andorian, right? Not Andorian. Um. Organian. Orga- well, they called him an Organian because they were on that planet, but right. is that really where they came from? I don't even know. But remind me who the Metrons are. I think the Metrons, I think they were the uh, rock people. Remember the rock guys that had pitted um, the Federation or Federation folks against. Uh, Plus people from the past, like Lincoln. Okay. Oh, against, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was a Metron. Okay. With with Lincoln and Kalis and... Exactly, right. Colonel Green, I think. Is there you one. go, Colonel Green. Right, right. All right. I, I, I think that was the Metron. But the main point is, some omnipotent race that they had dealt with uh, in the past... <clears throat> um. Is explained who they are now. They're, they're, they, they are the Klingon to the Organians Federation. So I thought the Organians were the preservers. But we find out 
that no, they're not the preservers. They're just more children of the preservers, uh, just like the enterprise, or just like humans are, and and and, and Vulcans and stuff. But Only they're like, more advanced. More like, we're like grandchildren since since they're, <laughs> we're so much younger than they are. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. So someday we'll be able to grow up and have omniscient powers. Too. Exactly. But the thing is. Okay, so if the preservers were preserving the child races, whatever, and then some of the child races end up being as powerful as they are, like like the Organians. I mean, because those weren't Organian outposts that they were in at the end, though all the white stuff. Those were right. preserver outposts, and the Organians were, like, running them or whatever, or at least they had control over them. Right. Um, so interesting how they've got a conveyor belt going. <laughs> the preservers have, an, have a conveyor belt going, and, and maybe thousands of years in the future, uh, the Organians will go ahead and do whatever, uh, you know, exit the picture, and they'll have, um, and, you know, maybe humans will take over the preserver outposts. I don't know. Right. Well, where did the preservers go? Did they die out or did they ascend to a, another all they, stage of being? All they said is that they left the galaxy. Right. Or left, well, maybe it's more than just the galaxy, but they left. And it actually, I, I'm pretty sure it said something about they were threatened by something. And they right, left. And they built the barrier, right? Exactly. That's it. Right. Okay. So, so they built that? the barrier. Yeah, I don't, don't know. Yeah, so they built the barrier so that the children races could be Develop. ready when, whenever exactly this right. external threat arrives. Exactly right. But we're not going to explain it. No, we're not. Because why? She's explaining so many things. Exactly. How much do you? How much can you expect her to explain, mm. dear reader? <clears throat> yeah, let's not go now, overboard. I wish there was a year five. Yeah, well, yeah. So, okay, so it's really <clears throat> year five and more years that went on in between before the uh, motion picture happened. Right. Where even more of this three-way liaison, um, dangerous liaison, is going to play itself out that we really don't hear about. But I can see this these five issues as being a great launching point to, you know more books that'll show what's playing out and maybe what's going on with this uh, duplicitous admiral. Right. And by the way, isn't the duplicitous admiral we see at the very end also the guy that arrives with the uh, Starfleet uh, task force to see, pull, tell to pull Kirk's him. to pull Kirk's butt out of the fire? He's got because, a flowery patch too. Yeah, and he has similar hair. but Right. Gray, uh, you know, like gray and black hair, uh, comb back. Right, but that guy is Admiral Nagoya or whatever, right? Okay. Uh, did he refer him to that? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. When he first arrives, he says, this is uh, USS Federation under command of Admiral Nagoya. Right. Okay. Well, I'm flipping between – because there's only three pages be, – about three pages between the um, the Section 31 Admiral – and the one that comes and pulls uh, Kirk's out of the fire, butt out right. of the fire, and they look really close. I mean, they're they even do. they're even looking at the same direction in profile. Yeah, I guess it is supposed to be him. All right, well then we know who this the section we know who the guy is. Yeah. Can we talk about the USS Federation for a second? Oh, oh, the three day cell ship. Yeah. Where the cool. third nacelle yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's it comes that. off of the saucer section. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Weird, right? It is weird. So it looks like it's got the shuttle bay on the front of the ship. On the front. That's what I wanted to talk about. Right. right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's so weird. It is. So it's got it's got this tiny little deflector dish. And above the deflector, tiny little deflector dish is what looks like the shuttle bay. Right. But having a nacelle on the uh, the saucer section directly makes mm -hmm. sense. It's you know if you're gonna go have a warp core breach, you want the saucer section to be able to get out there fast. 
Okay, but if you leave behind the warp core, how is a warp drive going to... I mean, how is a warp engine going to have power to run? It has a preserve warp core oh. in the saucer. <laughs> uh, can. Okay, so they've got an entire <laughs> engineering section to house the warp core and all that kind of stuff. And granted, a shuttle bay uh, and right. deflector dish. But then you're going to go ahead and have the warp core duplicated, or maybe a smaller version, whatever, in the saucer section to power that single nacelle. Exactly. It's called, okay. it's like, you know, it's, it's called redundancy, Ken. Okay. You got to okay. have a backup plan. Okay. Well, where is the redundant deflector dish? Uh, you don't need one when it's so streamlined oh. like that. <laughs> even <laughs> though the reality is, if you're going at warp speeds, even a piece of dust that you hit into could potentially rip through the hull. Uh, yeah, right. Uh-huh, okay. You don't even have to be going at warp. That would happen. Oh, I, I agree with you. You just have to be going significantly fast. Because things move fast. Well, exactly. and the dust is moving fast. Well, it could be just sitting there. Oh, you're talking about stationary dust. Uh, it could be either way. It could be moving <laughs> towards, the inter- towards the ship, away from the ship. It could be sitting there, minding its own business. And then when the, when the near-warp speed, near-speed-of-light ship comes through it, it just rips the whole uh, hull. Like a knife through butter. Uh, like a hot knife, knife through butter. Hot knife through butter. Hot knife through a Superman uh, butter statue. Yes. What is that a reference to? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was in Des Moines working, and we went to the state fair. And that was one of the years when a Superman movie had come out. And they had a butter Superman statue <laughs> made out of butter, 100% butter. And they had a butter cow, a cow statue made out of butter. And they had a few other statues all made out of butter. But it was a Superman statue. Sorry, it, it was really – that was a reference that no one else would get ever. <laughs> but I had to mention it. Actually, I, I should send you a photo of that. Please do. Because I, th- I think I still have the photo of it. I'm a fan of both Butter and Superman. So sure. <laughs> Can't go wrong combining those two. <laughs> it's like peanut butter and chocolate. All right. That's okay, funny. but back to this. <laughs> so, uh, so, anyways, I thought the ship was interesting looking, and the battle was pretty cool. Uh, although, aside from the USS Federation, it was all just repurposed enterprises yeah, in the battle. Yeah, a lot of Constitution ships, class ships. Right. Right, and there was so little detail you couldn't tell any registry numbers or anything. It no. just looked like a photoshopped exact same pose of the Enterprise all over the page. Yes. Well, and they're really, I mean, did they actually say the name USS Federation? Or you're able to just barely see it. Uh, no, Nagoya says it when he says, he says, this is the USS Federation under the command of... Oh, there you go. You're right. I see it right there. Okay. So that's the only one that had a name. And if you look at it uh, on that same page, you can barely yeah, you can, fill out Federation. You can pretty much figure it out, uh, you know, make it out on the on the primary... Uh, but but all the other section. ones, very disappointing that it, it looked like the exact same pose, just mm-hmm. copy and paste. Exactly. Right. Well, you know, everybody's got a budget to work with then. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, they actually took the the time and money to develop this uh, new ship. Oh, oh, look at the – oh, I didn't notice that angle. So it looks like the USS Federation has a deflector dish coming out of its butt? I think that's an exhaust port. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Okay, so at the back of the engineering section where you would normally see a shuttle bay, <laughs> it, it has like. what looks like a gold deflector dish coming out of its butt. Okay. Yeah, it does look like that. So it, does that mean it can go in warp speeds backwards? Uh, no, that'd be silly. Okay. Is that like one of those things with the handle that you pull back and then you <laughs> let go forward and it goes pop? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. No, I thought it. I thought it was they were going the gold key route, and that's where they put the uh, the fire exhaust. Another another engine. So the back of the uh, back of the no, yeah. So that's secondary hull is 
Okay, right, exactly, right. Gold key style. Okay, yeah, that could be. That could be. <laughs> okay, I don't know. Anyway, so I'd like to take us back from. Are you done talking about ships? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I just want to take us back to the beginning of the book where uh, Sarek and Spock are speaking, and it's odd, but it looks like Sarek or Sarek is wearing a blue shirt with a black uh, collar under his robes. So, so it looks exactly like like Spock's Starfleet tunic. So I'm just asking myself, is he actually wearing a Starfleet Sciences uniform under his tunic? Is Sarek a cosplayer? I, I, I'm wondering what's going on. I don't think so. Okay. But that is interesting. What I thought was interesting is that he's obviously an old adult, right? Yes. Uh, you know. And Sarek is just now telling him, you know, Spock, <laughs> all Vulcans do have emotions. And I'm like, seriously, the guy's like 50 years old at this point. You're just now telling him that that everybody has emotions and they just suppress it. It seemed mm-hmm. like a weird conversation to have to your, uh, you know, adult son. Yes, it's Maybe a little, a little too little too late. Right. Maybe you should have told me this when I was a little boy, Dad. <laughs> I feel a lot. I feel a lot better about myself. Right. So this is information that we, as the reader, already know. Spock, as a character, should have already known. So, what was the point of this conversation, aside from setting up the Colonar thing? Right. Uh, more backstory for people that may not realize Spock has emotions. And then how did that play into the rest of the I, story? It didn't. No, of course not. Well, not. I think we said before, all three of these did not play into the story. Yeah. One bit. Although, at least with this one, the idea supposedly is with him being in the machine and getting the shock treatment and getting all the stuff downloaded, is he's, I don't know why, but he's going through all of these emotional memories. So it kind of ties into that a little bit, kind of. But really, that's uh, even that's a tenuous link. Mm. Uh, but it's actually more of a link than I think the other two. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. The spot. The the McCoy one was literally he's doing <laughs> surgery on somebody, and he's like, "Remember back when when I went visited my daughter?" <laughs> exactly. You know, Doctor McCoy, I think you're right. You're. Your mind should be on this operation, not uh, family issues. Right. That happened, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, however long that was. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, the only reason they did the Kirk thing is that it was something that was troubling him at the beginning of the uh, of the story. Right. But, okay, that has nothing to do with the main point of the story. Anyway, right. Whatever. Yeah, so something that happened two years ago in season one. Right. You know – yeah, is bothering him now because yeah. uh, there you go because he went to his brother's funeral. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyways, there you go. The whole setting up of uh, Oryx's species as being some link to the future mm-hmm. or some special yeah. role, right? Yeah. Well, that's never going to play out. I mean, it does. Why set something up like that that you know well, <clears throat> you're not going to follow through with? And. Well, maybe you maybe you think you might follow through with it. So maybe this storyline was going to launch into uh, a whole storyline that could have been pursued, and so you could have found out what Arix's role was. Uh, but maybe that's too far in the future. I, I'd just be I'd just be happy to see you know year five, right. and year five picks up with the story that has been uh, shown in this past, this last final issue. So maybe that's what she was going for. You know, right. I'm going to do a year four. Always want to leave things open for the future, so I'm putting some breadcrumbs here to set things up if we want to do another series of uh, of books. Right. Yeah, I would have rather seen a year six where they, uh, you know, or what, year six. What, what they're doing in the, in the time frame between the series and the movie. Right, because you know, even though we saw it like on a, in an annual or something in for DC, but uh, still want to, I, I would have liked that fleshed out, that time frame fleshed out more. Sure, yeah, but you are right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? 
Right. You know, you could actually see him get the pajama uniforms eventually if it goes on long enough. Oh, yeah. Pajama uniforms. Oh. <laughs> well, supposedly, how much time in between the original series and and the movie? Is it, is it five years or longer? Oh, it's longer than five years. Okay. I mean, well, <clears throat> I th- well, okay. The five-year mission happens, and then right. the, and then there's a gulf of time between that and uh, the motion picture. And right. I'm not as sure exactly how long that gulf is, but they may actually be real time. So Star Trek ended uh, in 69, right? And then we didn't have a new – well, Star Trek, the motion picture happened in – 76, 75? What, when did it come out? Um, 70, 76. 76. Okay, let's say 76. So yeah, so there's, uh, you wrap up the five-year mission, then what, you have another three years in between the five-year mission and the motion picture? Three, four years? Right. Something like that. Yeah, so anyways, so that's a long time for everybody to be still on the Enterprise doing nothing. You know, only Kirk yeah. got promoted, and everybody else is still doing the same job, working on a ship that's not even going to go out anywhere. It's just being refit. Right. Well, things could have been happening before the refit. But, you're, I mean, you're right. <clears throat> I mean, the whole Sulu thing should have happened a lot earlier than it did. Right. Well, and the Spock thing. I mean, he doesn't become a captain until Star Trek Two. Yeah, okay, so he... Okay, well, let's not get bogged down too much on this, but... Yeah, we probably should wrap it up. This really yeah. has nothing to do with the book. Yeah, exactly. Let's come back to it. Okay, so I I think those are... I think I've said what I wanted to say. I mean, the main thing is I, I enjoyed this, uh, this series of books very nicely, and it explained a lot of things, especially in the last fifth uh, issue, and uh, I think it was very good. I enjoyed it. Although it seemed a bit draggy at times, and there were stuff that didn't need to be there. Right. Like these three vignettes with the main characters, but yeah, it was great seeing Elborn right. again. Well, there was so much story here going on in this time frame that they that oftentimes it seems like they condensed it more than they needed to. You know, where you know you hate to say there's too much reading, but, <laughs> uh, but for you know for a third of the book to be some sort of weird flashback that really has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Um, you think that you could have used the, you know, those five, six pages to, you know, spread out, you know, the battle. The battle happens in like five or six panels, uh, and then you're like, okay, that could have been out long. You know, you could have flushed that out more mm-hmm. yeah. instead of doing the weird flashback thing. <sighs> but aside right. from that, I mean, I, I like the story, and I would like to see more of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we are. I don't. No, I don't. No. I don't think this sold very well, and and they're not going to revisit it. At least, well, not well enough. But I dug it. I think this is far better than a lot of other uh, issues that have that have gone out. Uh, but eh, whatever. I, I think I like it better than the first year four. I mean, at least this was you know yeah. five issues that all kind of <clears throat> pertain to each other, whereas the other one was five. Seemingly random issues that you come to find out that one or two of them tied in together at the at the end. Exactly, I agree. I agree. I like this one better than the other year four issues. Because this one had that mystery guy. Who is that guy working behind the scenes, talking to everybody? That kind of thing. It was good. Ooh, with the admiral. Yeah, right. Because you know, at the beginning, it was just yeah, it was a just a shadow of a guy, right? Like that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the what Admiral Nagura. Ends right. up being the guy that was yeah. in the beginning, very beginning. Right. I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah. So anyways, so uh, what are we doing next week, Ken? So how about uh, going back to our favorite, Gold Key? Issues 23 and 24, I think, are next next up on the docket. Yep, that's what we'll be doing next week. So looking forward to those. I do enjoy those, uh, as, as campy as they can be sometimes. It's just, <laughs> there's a little bit of charm there that I've always enjoyed. There is charm. And there's heavy camp, and there's absolutely no, almost no uh, continuity, but that's fine. You oh. got, you have enjoyed, enjoy them as you can. Right. 
Right. Let's see if it can top the Voodoo Planet. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the high bar for me. Ah, oh, the Voodoo. The Voodoo Planet was the yeah. The Voodoo Planet. That's right. Or the paper mache. Paper mache. Earth, Eiffel Tower, whatever. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah, that was a winner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week. See you later on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.